0: Good morning to each of you. I will be preaching this morning from Colossians chapter 1. Paul wrote this letter while he was in prison, and he wrote it after someone came to visit him in prison from Colossae. And the visitor brought some disturbing news. Uh, that is news of uh, some heresy, we would call it, some questionable beliefs that these people were facing. And I'm I'm saying that because of what. Paul does in the first chapter. The there were two main elements to to the um, heresy. I almost hesitate to use that word, but to the heresy, there was a Jewish element that said that one a person must practice the law of Moses in order to be right with God. In order to be a part of God's family, you have to practice the law of Moses. And so there was an emphasis on circumcision, uh, becoming a proselyte if you weren't a Jew. There was a focus on dietary laws and on the observance of certain days, holy days. That was the Jewish element, and then there was a pagan element, the belief that matter is evil, that only ideas are pure and holy, and that salvation is therefore a matter of, of knowledge and, and having the right knowledge, which that wasn't all wrong but that knowledge is the basis for uh, salvation and not faith in Christ, but knowing certain things. And there was an emphasis on superior knowledge. And the result of uh, especially this idea that matter is evil is that uh, since matter is evil... The idea that Christ must not be, either, He can't be human, He must either be fully divine and not fully human, or fully human and not fully divine. And also the idea that since matter is evil, everything uh, that is not explicitly spiritual is implicitly evil or devilish or worldly. In the first chapter, uh, well, there are several themes in Colossians, and I have three this morning, but I don't think I have time to cover them all. I noticed that uh, you dear people have managed to get a clock back there that I can actually read, so I know that right now it is 11.15, I can see that, so I will be able to tell. It's time kind to of stop, all right? Um the one theme, a major theme in Colossians one is Paul's positive attitude toward the Colossians about them, his attitude concerning the Colossians. I want you to focus on that. And then there's another theme in Colossians 1, or throughout the book, the fullness of Christ, the supremacy of Christ. And then there he uh, Paul addresses this theme of the three eras in chapter 2, ceremonialism, mysticism, and asceticism, but I doubt I'll get there. So, first of all, in chapter 1, his attitude toward the Colossians, despite their difficulty, uh, so we will read here the first uh, 12, 13 verses, Colossians 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae, grace be unto you, in peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and of the love which ye have to all the saints, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit as it doth also in you, since the day you heard of it, and knew the grace of God in truth. As you also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. For this cause we also, since the day we heard of it, do not cease to pray for you, and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to His glorious power unto all patience, And long suffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. Uh, I need to stop somewhere. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but uh, in the King James Paul's sentences uh, go on and on and on. And uh, they have colons and semicolons and commas and uh, whatever, and they tend to be uh, endless. Uh, which is fine. It's, it's fine. But uh, it's hard to know where to break in to stop. Uh, the, the passage there... Uh, focuses first of all on Paul's prayer for these people. How he, he describes how he prays for them, and and then that kind of morphs into uh, statements about who Christ is and for them, for God's people. So I was trying to find a place to stop there. So, in verse 2, Paul refers to the Colossians as saints and faithful brothers and sisters, and he wishes them God's grace and God's peace. And I think it's um, good for us to ask ourselves what our view of, of the saints is. Our attitude toward them so here are these people that that he's concerned about, concerned enough to write a letter to, and talk about some difficulty, some ideas they might have, some ideas floating around among them. And he refers to these people as saints and faithful brothers and sisters. And I'm not I'm not emphasizing that in order to ignore that. Uh, There are bad beliefs and wrong beliefs, and there is a time to uh, speak to them and speak to people about these things. But here Paul emphasizes that they are saints and faithful brothers and sisters, and, and then he wishes them God's grace and God's peace. May the Lord bless you is the idea. May God's face shine upon you. May God's grace be with you. That's the idea. And then in verses 3 to 5, Paul continues to express his positive attitude toward these people. And he gives thanks to God uh, for them praying always for them, he said. And uh, if you notice, uh, there are three times here that Paul, in this passage, that Paul mentions prayer, and that's in verse verses 3 and 9 and 11. So, he commends them for three things here, first of all. Uh, He mentions their faith, and their love, and their hope. Their faith in Christ Jesus, Uh, perhaps we would say, first of all, their faith in God, the faith in the promises of God, and the faith in uh, who Christ is, which... Uh, reminds me of our Sunday school lesson and just the idea that, that Abraham is the father of the faithful and, and what did having faith mean for Abraham? Um, may, maybe it meant something similar, uh, something like it means for many of us. And we don't even think about, maybe, we don't think about whether we're having faith or not as life goes on. We just kind of do it. I mean, we do life. We don't always do faith well, maybe. But, um, if I may say so, maybe maybe this is like uh, having 345 cows, and then a month later you have 20. Actually, we have 36. I think, this morning. And I went over and milked, and I milked 20 cows. I milked 20 cows. And I thought to myself this morning that um, this is the fewest cows that have been on this farm that have been milked at a milking uh, since sometime back in 1940s. So this is so... What what does it mean what does it mean to have faith in God? You make a you make a choice, you make a decision, and you cannot, I'm telling you people this morning, it is impossible to know totally the results of a decision you make in faith, what the end result will be. You do not know. We like to know. We like to figure it out. We like to have a plan. And that's all good. And we need to plan and all of that. But faith. Well, in, in relation to faith in Christ, of course, it is faith in who He is. It is faith in His work. It is faith that He will forgive us. It is faith that He will save us. It's faith that He will keep us. It's faith that he has a good end in mind, he has a good goal in mind. That's the meaning of end. It's not so much time end as it is goal or purpose. And so, Paul commends them for their faith. And this is the call. This is the call to us, is faith in Christ. Even though you don't know what life will be and you can wonder uh, what God is up to, what Christ is up to, uh, we do wonder because the fact is you don't have enough brain power to figure out uh, what all is going on in your world. So faith, faith in Christ. And then Paul commends them for their love toward all the believers. And this is speaking of agape love, God-like love, self-sacrificing love, self-giving love, a love that is patterned after the deliberate choice that Christ made to suffer and to die to assist others helpless. Others. A self giving, that is, giving of Christ's life to the point of death. And this kind of love seeks the welfare of others and refrains from doing evil or ill even when we have the opportunity. Hurt. And of course, all of us have hurt people. Every last one of us. We may not have intended to. But this is talking about a, a love that intends the best and does not intend evil. The test of love is whether we can love those we think are unworthy. Of love. Those we find hard to respect. Those who have some fault. Those who are wounded in some way and have nothing to give to us. In fact, maybe they are takers. Love. God's love gives and cares for, has mercy toward, and it does not shoot its own. It finds a way to minister to them. So, Paul is commending them for having this kind of love toward all believers. And then Paul commends them for their hope. Uh, And the idea of hope is confident expectation concerning something that is unseen, something that is future, something that is not yet fully revealed. But there's a promise, a promise of it. So, hope here refers to the thing hoped for the glorious reward, the heavenly blessedness, the the final reward for the people of God. And so Paul is saying the Colossians saw the eternal reward and that moved them to faith and love. Faith and love are presented here as the result of their hope. Hope moves us to trust, to love, and to obey. Uh, it, it says, First uh, John three says, we are God's children right now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. It's not fully known. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is, and everyone who has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure. And, and of course, we know that purifying ourselves is, is not meant as This is something that we can do by ourselves to ourselves, but it's something we participate in with God. The purifying, the purifying effect of God's love and discipline and so on. So faith faith and love are the result of hope. So this hope moves us, motivates us to faith and love. And this hope is securely, it says here, stored up for us in heaven. It's secure. It's like a treasure. And this hope is the result of the knowledge we have. It comes by hearing the word of truth, according to these verses the word of the truth of the gospel. We hear in the gospel this word of truth concerning the future and the hope we can have about the confident expectation. It's laid up for us in heaven. So, one question here that we could ask ourselves is uh, how do we maintain faith and love and hope in the midst of life as it is. And uh, I have some things written down, but the first thing that comes to my mind just as I stand here and ask the question uh, uh, my first thought is, well the first thing I want to say is, and forgive me pardon me for my English, it ain't easy. I know that's not The best way to say that, but it ain't easy. I think we we fool ourselves when we think that uh, these things ought to just happen and we shouldn't have to, nobody should have a struggle with anything. It's not really how life is. Life in this world... uh, Maybe one way to say it is life in this world requires more faith and more love and more hope than you can come up with on your, on your own by yourself. If it didn't, we could all save ourselves. And we know that's impossible. It will require, life requires more faith, love, and hope than comes easily for us. And evil and humanity and imperfection is what causes life to require more faith, love, and hope than comes natural to us. And I don't think it really helps. It may for a little while. I don't think it really helps to deny the reality of evil and trouble in the world. In order to uh, feel good, in order to uh, feel like we have faith, we just deny that something is not the way it is. Uh, But of course, there is a challenge if you're going to be real about life and face reality as it is, there is a challenge of having faith and love and hope in the midst of it. I also think it helps. Uh, if we don't blame the chaos of life, all of it on everybody else, I think it helps if we can be honest about our own contribution. It, it helps us uh, it helps us, I think, to be able to repent when it's our problem, when we have failed in some way. And that there's always a, uh, I, I believe a good result to repenting. And that is, you can be forgiven and you can grow. So, faith, love, and hope, I think, uh, is partly the result of having a a healthy, open, honest relationship with God about ourselves. Not just about the chaos everywhere else. And I believe that uh, growth in faith, love, and hope Uh, requires a constant turning to God. It really does in every situation. uh, To the extent that we can to to turn toward God. Now in verses 6 and 7, Paul says to them that the gospel has come to them and it has come to them in the same way that it has to the rest of the world. And Paul says that the gospel that has come to them is bearing fruit in their lives. And he says that this gospel that bears fruit in their lives is the same gospel that has gone out throughout the whole world. I guess Paul should know uh, he was a, a missionary. <laughs> he'd been out, he'd been around, he had, been, uh, he had experience of taking the gospel to unknown regions. Regions in that day that people hardly knew about or ever went to. So he said the gospel had gone out to the whole world. And he says the gospel brings forth fruit wherever it is taught, all over the world. So, he wants these people to know that he believes that the gospel is bearing fruit in their lives, and he believes the gospel is going out to the whole world, and he believes the gospel is bearing fruit everywhere it goes, all around the world. He also, in these statements, is saying that the gospel is universal and that it is for all people and all cultures. Now, I want to comment a little bit about this universal gospel. Uh, Again, if I could go back... uh, I confess, there's a reason why I wanted. To, if I had an opportunity to do the Sunday school lessons, I never dreamed I would have the opportunity. Whoever's responsible for that, I want to thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, but I, I, did. I wanted. I wanted to. Uh, um, I wanted to help us think about. The, the roots of the gospel of faith. And, and uh, in, this, is a, this is an interesting idea, a fascinating idea, this idea of a universal gospel for all people. In light of the fact that in the Old Testament it would appear on the surface that, that the good news was only for God's chosen people, the Jews. But, you know, as, as it goes on, even in the Old Testament, you discover that, that God expected the Jews to bless other people. And the call to Abraham and the Jews was to be a light, a light according to Romans 2, a light to all people of who God is, a light that would call them to faith in this God. Affairs And Paul in Romans 2 actually uh, criticizes uh, the Jews for not having been a good light. They had not done well at this. But we see in the Old Testament even a foreshadowing of this New Testament universal gospel. We see it in stories and events in the Old Testament in which non-Jews uh, either become members of a Jewish nation, or they participate in the work that God was doing in the world, or they were recipients of God's grace, too, uh, even like Jonah and none of us. And we see the the evidence of this universal gospel in the earthly ministry of Jesus, in his ministry to non-Jews. Uh, Then we see, too, now I'm talking about, Paul is talking here about this universal gospel, this gospel that goes out to the whole world and bears fruit. Um, So we have in the New Testament, in the Acts, in the Epistles, the spread of the gospel among diverse cultures. Uh, But all of these believers in these various cities Uh, regions uh, were viewed as embracing a common gospel. And of course, I think we all know this, might forget it, but I think we all know there was no such thing as various denominations in that day. Uh, but they had their struggles and they had their differences, uh, especially it's presented in Acts 15 and Romans 15, 14 and 15, the struggle between the, the Jewish and Gentile cultures and the, the difficulty of meshing, integrating these diverse people in one, uh, in one place, geographical place, in one group. The challenge of that, but they were to be viewed as all of one body, viewed each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. So the question here, I think, for us, I, I can't answer all the questions that might come up about what I just said, but the the question here is whether we have uh, a big enough view of. God and faith in God, faith in christ they big enough the view of the gospel that that it is actually bearing fruit in each other local. <laughs> uh, you know, it is very easy when someone. Uh, let's see. When someone is different than I am, or someone has a different thought than I do, or a different conclusion, or when when someone irritates me or their personality is different, it is very, very easy for us to wonder if why well, have people already asked me about I don't have anyone here in mind, but ask me about someone. Do you think that person's actually saved? And the the basis for the question was just their personality and their different way of looking at things is like, I don't know if he's even a Christian. So the question, and a person might not be a Christian. I'm not saying everybody claims they are as a Christian. But the question is, do we believe that that the gospel is bearing fruit among the people that we, that we know, that we're close to, that we, we we relate to. Do we believe that? Can we believe it? And do we believe that God is bearing fruit among people in other places? It, you know, it, it is very easy to, to be somewhat critical or judgmental and to question uh, it's even easy, I think, to, to think this way that if I'm not involved in it, it probably's not going too well. It probably isn't. Now, I mean, when I say that, you know, that just feels like, oh my! I mean, that is really—that's that, a lot of pride in that. And maybe, maybe none of you think like that, but. I'm just saying, uh, the gospel. Paul's comment here is that it is bearing fruit among you, even though you might have this trouble, and it's bearing fruit among other people around the world. Do we believe the gospel is bearing fruit among others, even as it is among us? Then the specific ways the gospel is bearing fruit, uh, he mentions some ways that it's bearing fruit in verses 9 to 12. Uh, One way is in in them growing in knowledge of the will of God. Um, He says, we haven't stopped praying for you. We're asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding so that you may walk worthy of the Lord. So, here's here's one thing we see in these verses. Of course, it raises the question how can we know God and His will? But there's a cycle here that Paul presents and it's the cycle of knowing and doing and then knowing more. So, Paul prays that they may be able to experience this cycle of increasing knowledge of God's will. Uh, First of all, that they may know, they may be able to know God's will. And then second, by knowing, then they'll be able to walk worthy or walk upright. And then third, by walking upright, worthy, and bearing fruit, uh, they will know more of God's will. So, it's, it's, a, it's a repeating cycle. That's how he presents it. So, first of all, in verse 9, his prayer that, that they have knowledge of God's will. Uh, first of all, that refers, I believe, knowledge of God's will refers to the whole purpose of God as revealed in Christ. Now, understanding of Christ and who He is. Christ who Christ is in the past, the Son of God came to earth, his birth, his life in the world, his teaching, his his death for sin, for the sins of the world, sacrifice, and his resurrection, and he's alive today. This is knowledge of God's purposes as revealed in Christ with the gospel. Knowledge of who we are in Christ. Knowledge of who Christ wants us to be in Him. This is knowledge of God's will. Very basic. And then it also, I believe, refers to knowledge of what God, how God wants us to live. How do people who trust in Jesus, how do people who have Jesus as Savior, and Lord, how, how do they live? Knowledge of how that kind of person lives. How does God want this person who has this knowledge of God and Christ live? Knowing God's intention for the uh, conduct of a Christian. What does a Christian life look like? Knowledge of that. To be filled with the knowledge of God's will, I think suggests that this knowledge, uh, it talks here about filled up with this knowledge, it suggests that this knowledge pervades our whole person, our thoughts, our affections, our desires, our emotions, our attitudes, uh, and it affects our habits and our behavior. So, we're we're filled up. Our whole being is full of knowledge of God's will. And I'm not talking about being perfect. I'm not not talking about perfect knowledge and perfect person. I'm talking about being uh, consumed with, filled up with, taken over by this like this umbrella of knowledge that we have of God, of Christ, and, and of, of the life that he's calling us to. And then Paul says that knowledge of God's will involves wisdom and spiritual understanding. And these these two words, wisdom and spiritual understanding, are, I think, closely related and maybe are talking about almost the same thing. Uh, The word wisdom is uh, the word Sophia. And it refers to insight into the true nature of things. To have wisdom is to is to have insight into what something really is, truly is. It's the opposite, I believe, of being naive or lacking insight. Just not knowing or understanding what's the reality of something. So wisdom... And uh, spiritual understanding, I think, is something like uh, reflective thought. Having reflective thought that agrees with truth. So, knowledge of God's will involves this wisdom and spiritual understanding. And so, Paul says, all of this that we might walk worthy of the Lord, Uh, Walk worthily, maybe, would be technically how to say it. Walking in a way that agrees with what we know to be God's will. That's the idea. Uh, To be bearing fruit. Being fruitful in every good work. And uh, this is... uh, I have it written in my notes that they will be bearing fruit, but it's not future, it's present. It's in the present tense. The fruit itself consists in every good work or every uh, active goodness, being active in goodness of every kind. Every kind of goodness or goodness in every area of life. All of our life, every part of our life. So, the, the emphasis there is on good works, good fruit. That, that is the call. That, that's the kind of person Paul says that the Colossians were. And it was because they understood the will of God. And they were living the will of God and then that they will be increasing in knowledge. So the cycle. And I, I believe uh, the one thing I want to say here is that I believe we really do need to understand that uh, knowing, knowing what's right and good and then doing it has, has a, uh, uh, let's see, it has a compounding uh, effect or result. It compounds upon itself. I mean, can you, uh, can you somehow grasp that? That if you know what's right and good and you do it, somehow that compounds and you become a better person. And uh, and then you know more of what God wants, and you do that, and and uh, you become a better and better person. And of course, it's not so that uh, we are well thought of; it is to bring glory to God. Verse 11 then says that we are being strengthened. As all of this is going on, we are being strengthened, empowered. This is what he saw for these people. That as this was happening, they were being strengthened, empowered by God's glorious power. So that they could have all patience and long suffering. So... I didn't check this. I didn't look, but uh, I know somewhere the scripture says that that we are empowered by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Now that's that's uh, that is the real power. We have the same power operating in us that raised Jesus from the dead. To be empowered by God's glorious power. What what does that mean? And have you experienced it? Have I? Are we? Do we? Can we? Day by day. And the goal of this empowering is patience. And the word is the idea of uh, endurance. It means to remain under, to remain under pressure, to remain under. It refers to perseverance in trials, perseverance in tests, and it, it is connected to hope. Those who have hope are able to endure, remain under, remain under pressure. Difficulty, stress, that's the idea. It's the opposite of uh, cowardice, the opposite of despondency. It's, It's the idea of being able to see things to the end. See things through, not give up. Patience. And long-suffering, one way to say it, is the ability to suffer long. It's the opposite of wrath or spirit of revenge, uh, getting even, uh, long-suffering. It speaks of even-temperedness, the attitude that in spite of whatever life is and whatever's going on, um, I continue to love the way God does and relate to people the way He would, the way He does. And then, Paul ends this with giving thanks unto the Father, which has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in life. Well, I said he ended. That wasn't the end of the sentence. He sees them, and he sees all of this going on for them, and he says he gives thanks. Giving thanks. Doing this with joy. Long-suffering with joyfulness and giving thanks. So we endure joyfully, and we give thanks because of who God is and what He's doing in revealing His will and uh, strengthening us, empowering us, and making it possible for us to walk this way. So this this is a striking to me is a striking uh, theme. His attitude toward these people, suggesting the attitude that we have toward people who are not perfect, uh, people that uh, we might be even frustrated with, what is our attitude? He commends them for God's work in their lives and for their fruitfulness, for their faith and love and hope. And uh, this is a call to us as well, I believe. Let's pray. Well, Lord, thank You. Thank You for these words. Uh, These words that Paul wrote to people who were in need of instruction, even correction. Lord, here's a call to us to, uh, to have a right view of the gospel and its power and its going out and its universal intention for all people. The call to walk a life that is worthy of our calling. A life, a life that uh, agrees with your will. Uh, Bless each of us here, Lord. Bless each of these people Uh, with your presence and your work and the growth of your gospel in each of our hearts. Uh, Grow in us faith and love and hope and give us joy in believing uh, and doing and thank you. Amen.